We are on an epic journey through the book of Acts. If you're new to church today or exploring Christianity for the first time, we've been exploring this historical account of the beginnings of church, written by a renowned historian and eyewitness, Dr. Luke, documenting the first 30 years or so of church. And it's been exciting, it's been surprising, and sometimes scary as well. And so for us as a church at the end of 2022, it's a little bit like tracing our family history and seeing what our family was like all those years ago. Recently, my father has been researching Ancestry.com and finding out about the root of our family, the Darcys. And he's discovered that the Darcys lived in Ireland over a hundred years ago. And we lived in a county called Tipperary, Southern Ireland. I know what you're going to say, it's a long way to Tipperary and I'm all aware of that. And it's been fascinating to find out about where they lived, how the family lived next door to each other and went along to the same Catholic church. And so I'd love to jump in a camper van sometimes next year and to explore the county of Tipperary and take the modern day Darcy's to see for ourselves at first hand where the Darcy's lived before they became Welsh and adopted this beautiful Ammonford accent. And so looking at the early accounts of Acts is like that for us as a church as well. It's like looking at family history of the faith. Through faith in Jesus, we are brothers and sisters of those early churchgoers, people like Peter, Paul and Stephen. And we can study them and look at their history because like us, they lived a life of faith and trust in Jesus, a life where not everything goes to plan. Hardships and trouble come at their door and we can see how they cling to God in those times or times when they've even doubted the faith, made bad decisions, even actively tried to destroy the church itself in the case of Paul. You see, Acts is a dramatic book. It's twists and turns and epic drama is on every page and you can forget about Netflix. In fact, if your subscription is getting a bit too pricey, let me recommend gripping the series of Acts. It's far more mind-blowing. These 28 episodes or chapters of Acts are full of the stories of the church exploding to life, growing in number by the thousands, and yet opposition against them growing at an incredible violent rate as well. There's miracles of the sick being healed, people being transported miraculously from one place to another, dreams and visions, people dropping dead, others being resurrected, murder, pursuit, dramatic escapes. This is not a book for the faint-hearted. And incredible generosity and sacrifice as well of the people of God giving their lives wholeheartedly to him. You see, at the heart of the book of Acts is the work of Jesus Christ. Even more gripping than these dramatic events is the fact that Jesus himself is building his church. He is at work. He is continuing his mission through the lives of his people. You see, the book of Acts is actually a sequel. There's a part one to Luke, the author's work, imaginatively titled, the Gospel of Luke. And he says at the start of Acts that he wrote previously about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. 
until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And so his first book that he recorded and researched was the biography of Jesus. And it was all about what he began to do. Therefore, this sequel is all about what he is continuing to do by the work of God, the Holy Spirit. He is at work in the events and lives of the people of Acts, building his church, broadcasting the news, the good news that Jesus saves. He forgives and he restores. There's new life, there's full life in him and he is alive and he is reigning today. And we can see that throughout the pages of Acts that Jesus is in the business of turning lives around. It is such an encouraging book that points us to the reality that Jesus, who began to do and to teach on earth, is now alive and is all-powerful. He is continuing to do what he began to do and teach. He is turning things around all over the world. From personal situations of despair, he turns to hope and joy. He turns political powers and religious traditions upside down. He takes persecution and opposition and turns it around for the good and advancement of his kingdom. I love how John Piper puts it. He contends that we often today have a feeling of fatalism, that nothing will change. Vilna mazi a vilna vizi, we say in Welsh. And we're caught in this cycle. This is the way I am. This is the way my spouse is. This is the way that work is, or lack of work maybe. Or this is the way society is, and that's that. Nothing will change. Nothing will ever change. I wonder whether you felt that despair as you've been watching the news in these last few weeks and months as constant stories of war in Ukraine and devastation there, of famine in East Africa, climate change destroying precious forests and landscapes and disrupting the lives of many millions and closer to home as well. Complete calamity in the government of this country and the soaring costs of living. Will things ever change? Will things go on and get worse? John Piper says one of the messages of the book of Acts is that this is emphatically not true. Jesus Christ is not dead. He is not distant. He is not silent. He is not weak and he is not uninterested in the world and the progress of his mission and in your life. He is alive and what he began to do in his earthly life, he is continuing to do. He is full of surprises for churches and for nations and for families and for individual people. What a quote by John Piper. Amen to that. He is our only hope. Jesus is our hope and he is in the business of turning things around. And none more dramatically than in the life of Saul, as we saw last week, a man who was breathing out threats and overseeing the murder of Christians, the systematic persecution of the early church. It's this man, this biggest enemy of the church locally, if you like, this man that Jesus stops and turns around. And not just prevented from persecuting so that the church can now thrive, no, he gets wildly converted dramatically on the Damascus Road and is changed from being an arch enemy of Christianity to being the most influential leader of the church 
and the most powerful missionary of Christianity. Jesus turns things completely around. He is full of surprises. He is infinitely powerful and wise. He is infinitely good. One thing that Jesus isn't is boring and uninterested. And so it's to this context that we arrive today at our next episode in the Epic of Acts. Saul has been dramatically converted, as we heard last week, and now the persecutor has been persecuted. The hunter himself, Paul, has become the hunted. And as we heard last week, the result of this, the fact that the biggest enemy of the church has now had his life completely turned around, the result was amazing for the local church. It says in Acts, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. There was peace and a massive period of growth for the church. Amazing, since the stoning of Stephen, the early church had been really under threat. The men and women who had found faith in Jesus had been forced to scatter, to escape Jerusalem, all apart from the apostles who had stayed in Jerusalem. And then suddenly, boom, there is peace, there is growth. Jesus turns things around. And that's the way he is. That's how, that's how we should think about life. And there is new freedom now. There is peace. The apostles in Jerusalem are free to start to roam, to take the gospel into new areas outside the big city of Jerusalem. And that's where we join our next scene. Our text for today is Acts 9 verses 32 to 43. As Peter travelled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralysed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became all known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. So having heard of the dramatic conversion of Saul in the last paragraph, we might feel a little disappointed to see that the focus changes from him to Peter, as one of the biggest turning points in church history has just happened, we want to know more about how Paul's ministry is going to reach new people. 
Well, that's all to come, of course, but cleverly, Dr. Luke, the historian, changes the picture and sets the scene in a nondescript city to the northwest of Jerusalem, where Jesus is continuing to turn things around and turn people to him. From Paul, we pick up on Peter's ministry and reads two stories of amazing, dramatic transformation in the lives of his followers. And it's this sequence of events that eventually leads to Peter taking the gospel to the Gentiles in Caesarea. You remember that Jesus commissioned the apostles to be witnesses of him in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, this trip for Peter is a pivotal one as the gospel begins to spread more and more until eventually in the next chapter, it reaches the Gentiles and eventually spreads to all corners of the earth. So he's about 24 miles away from Jerusalem and in a city called Lydda. Today it has an international airport. There were no planes in Peter's time, but it did have a large market. Scholars tell us it was famous for selling cattle and textiles and pottery. So there was a bustling community when Peter visited there. But notice that he didn't arrive there to go shopping for textiles or cattle or go to the local John Lewis of the day. He travelled about visiting the saints, visiting the saints. Christianity had already reached the city of Lydda before Peter's trip. We're not sure how it may have been during the time of persecution as early Christians fled from Jerusalem, but however uh, it reached there, they counted themselves as followers of Jesus and called him their saviour. And I love how Peter views his ministry. He simply travels about the country visiting. No grand fanfare or sell-out stadiums, no advertising campaign, just visiting believers, encouraging, praying with them, instructing them, no doubt sharing stories with them of his time with Jesus, always pointing these believers to Christ, their risen saviour. And let me encourage you this morning too that visiting believers, to spend time with each other, encouraging, drawing alongside, sharing each other's burdens is so, so valuable. It's not about the grand sermons and the sell-out worship conferences, is it? It's about God's people drawing alongside each other, equipping, challenging, sharing God's faithfulness with each other and building each other up. I wonder who you think you could visit this week or encourage by text or WhatsApp. It's so vital to church life. And so Peter comes across Aeneas. I must admit, I struggle to pronounce uh, this guy's name. Too many vowels, maybe, but that didn't stop Peter. Of this guy, we know very little. We know that he was a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Not eight weeks, eight years. And in those times, being in that condition meant that life was pretty bleak and hopeless. In fact, it's more than likely that he faced the same prospect for the rest of his life. And Peter looks at him and calls him by his first name. Aeneas, Jesus Christ, heals you, he says. And notice it is Jesus Christ that heals, not Peter, not the disciple. It is Jesus himself who turns things around, who disrupts and breaks in to this poor man's life. He has compassion and restores him 
and heals him completely. And what happens to him? Well, Peter says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. You know, this was a real miracle. Many of us have been saying for years, get up and make your bed to our teenagers. And they most definitely have not immediately got up. But this man's life was changed instantly, completely. And it was a real answer to prayer, wasn't it? I don't know if you remember back in chapter 4 where Peter and John, the disciples, prayed that God would heal, that he would show his power and compassion through signs and wonders. Chapter 4 says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And so this man, just like the beggar that Peter and John came across near Solomon's colonnade in an earlier account, Aeneas is healed miraculously too. And Luke goes on to tell us of the results of this remarkable miracle. The whole community got to hear about it. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. They saw the new, revived, refurbished Aeneas on his feet. What was impossible for him, the very act of standing up, is possible to Jesus and he turns his life around. Much like the woman at the well that Jesus meets, she can't stay silent once that Jesus has met her and transformed her. She rushes off. She says, come and see a man. She says to her whole community, come and see him who knows everything about me and loves me. And I bet that was the message that Aeneas shared with the city of Lydda and Sharon as well, that the whole plain near the Mediterranean eventually heard. With his story, hundreds more men and women came to know Jesus. And as he turns Aeneas' life around, so others turn their lives to him. Dr. Luke is clear that this sign and wonder of healing leads to an even greater miracle of lives transformed, of entire communities turning to Christ. The reason Peter and John and the believers prayed so passionately back in chapter 4 for signs and wonders was for this very reason, that God would use them to bring multitudes to Christ. There's around 17 examples in the book of Acts where miracles like this help lead to conversions. There's no doubt that the working of miracles, signs and wonders, helped bring people to Christ. That is what Dr. Luke wants us to see, and that's why Christians prayed for signs and wonders to happen. And possibly the greatest, most staggering of all is to follow next. In verse 36, we're introduced to this amazing lady who was known by two distinct names, Tabitha and Dorcas. Dorcas sadly dies. But by the end of our passage today, Dorcas is staggeringly raised to life again. Jesus really does change her situation around. Let's get into her story and find out why Tabitha or, or Dorcas's life and death speaks us, to us today. Verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, 
So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the upper room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. First of all, I love the fact that this humble lady who lived in the port city of Joppa gets airtime and attention in Acts. I love the fact that her story is preserved for us to visit today. She was literally a nobody, not of noble birth, not of political power. She was a humble Christian living and loving her community. And that is why I love this story so much. So where are we? Well, Peter, fresh from healing the healing of Ananias, is called to go down to Joppa, some 10 miles away from Lydda. It's near modern-day Tel Aviv, near the Mediterranean. And if you remember your Old Testament, it's where Jonah ran to flee from the Lord, to board the ship at Joppa and to sail to Tarshish. The Joppaites had heard probably of the miracle that just happened to Ananias and that scores of people had come to know Christ as a result. And so with this expectation, they send for Peter. So why are they so keen to bring Peter to a dead woman? And what do they expect that he can do for them, for her? Well, let's look at what we know of Tabitha. Firstly, she has two names. Not many of us has uh, two names, uh, do we? Maybe we call each other behind our backs. But uh, Tabitha, or Dorcas's name, reveals to us how she was regarded by her community in Joppa. Those who called her Tabitha spoke Aramaic as their native language, the language of the Jews. And those who spoke Greek called her Dorcas. A name, by the way it's translated, uh, means gazelle meaning graceful and beauty and agile. So Dorcas meaning Tabitha actually means gazelle or antelope. So if you hear that <laughs> uh, as a name for yourself, take it as a compliment, meaning beauty. And so in this bustling cosmopolitan city, Tabitha is well known to two very different communities, the Gentiles and the Jews. And more than that, she is sharing her faith and shining Jesus into the lives of those very women. So before the early church commissioned Paul and Barnabas to evangelise both groups, it seems that Tabitha was already reaching out into the lives of others and sharing the message of Jesus. She just did it. She was being salt and light in her community and meeting the essential needs of both Jews and Gentiles. And so in this broad cosmic account of Acts by Luke, the beginning of uh, Jesus' church on earth, we see a very real portrayal of an early Christian life. The book of Acts isn't a how-to-do church manual, it's actually real stories coming to life on these pages. What it means to be a Christian. And we're taken to the narrow, dusty, sweaty streets of downtown Joppa to see this woman at work. You see, Tabitha was a dressmaker. She made clothes for the poor. And in that mundane, everyday, normal job, she shone Jesus into the lives of the needy. She sacrificially gave her time, her resources and herself to meet their spiritual and emotional and physical needs. 
Over the years, Tabitha has been given the name of God's Dressmaker. I love that. Or Queen of the Needle. <laughs> For Tabitha, being good meant doing good. She saw a need of clothing the widows. She had the gift and the talent to do it, and she just did it. I know she would have wholeheartedly agreed with the Apostle James, who later wrote these words. What good is it? My brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. For Tabitha, Faith in Jesus meant Christian service. For her, she would do her best, to the best of her ability, to try to meet the needs of the poor by simply sewing clothes. The Roman Empire became famous all over the world for its advanced towns and cities, its culture and its power, but it was sadly lacking in its social programs. There was very little support for the elderly, for the poor and the disabled or widows. And so the early church steps in. People like Tabitha made such a positive impact, not only feeding and clothing the poor, but promoting the message of Jesus amongst them. Do you know another thing that I love about Tabitha's story? Unlike Peter and later Paul, Tabitha didn't command the attention of thousands of people and gave rousing historical speeches. She wasn't an academic or important in the eyes of the world. She just did the smallest thing, her thing, and that of sewing. Sewing stitches, one after the other. And I want to encourage you today that what you do for the kingdom of Christ, even if it's the smallest thing in your eyes, doesn't go unnoticed. It isn't small or insignificant. Just because it doesn't grab the headlines doesn't mean that it isn't important in the eyes of God. It is valuable. It is of worth. Whether it's helping out locally here in Renew, if it's volunteering in the food bank, if it's knocking on your neighbour's door, checking that your elderly neighbour is okay, if it's turning the other cheek again and forgiving again, it doesn't go unnoticed by our Heavenly Father. He knows us, he loves us, and he wants us to be more like Dorcas. It reminds us of Jesus' words in Matthew 25 in response to the question, when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And he replies, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. It's easy to assume that we're doing nothing. In the world's eyes, we might not be achieving success and grabbing the headlines, but a homebound friend, constrained by chronic illness, praying faithfully for others, achieves far greater things for the kingdom of God. Your acts of kindness, even our most mundane task, performed in faith, are achieving a weight of glory. I love this quote from the author A.W. Tozer that sums up this idea of majesty in the mundane very well. 
It is not what a person does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. The motive is everything. Let a man sanctify the Lord God in his heart and he can therefore do no common act. Making a coat, making dresses were common acts, but Tabitha, she did them in the name of Jesus and they became something very special. Tabitha didn't do anything heroic like Deborah or risky like Rahab. She simply served her saviour by ministering to the marginalised. She was filled with good works, the Bible says. She was living out Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And so Tabitha dies, and it seems that her friends' lives are falling apart at her loss. So they call for Peter, and when he arrives, they take him to an upper room where she is laid, and the widows there are weeping. They show Peter the kind deeds and acts that Tabitha made among them, and there's no doubt that Peter is moved by this. So Peter, in verse 40, just as Jesus did in the raising of Jairus' daughter, sends all the mourners out of the room. He kneels beside her and prays. You see, Peter knew where the source of this power came from before he prays. He doesn't rely on his own strength to perform this miracle. It all begins with prayer, doesn't it? And if you scan through the entire book of Acts, you'd be staggered at the amount of times that prayer is mentioned. It is central to the apostles' mission. It is central to the early lives of those Christians. It was central to Jesus' life on earth, and it's central to our lives here today. There's a story of five young men who were on a trip to London years ago, and they were keen to hear the famous preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon and his chapel, Metropolitan Tabernacle, of course, preaching there. And they arrived there super early to get a seat, but when they got there, they found that everything was locked up. With that, a gentleman comes towards them and asks, would you like to see the heating equipment of this church? A little perplexed at this question, they say okay to the gentleman. If you wish to show us, then please lead the way. The gentleman then takes them down some long steps, comes eventually to the end of a long hallway, and a man opens the door. And there, in this large room, was 700 people filling the room on their knees in prayer. At that point, the gentleman turns around to the five young men and says, there, my friends, is the heating apparatus of this church. They later found out that their unknown gentleman guide was, yes, Charles Haddon Spurgeon himself. You see, he recognised the power of prayer, that the power was all God's. Prayer, as someone once put it, is the point where we simply admit that I simply can't do it. But God can. God can. And so let's make prayer a priority in our lives. Let's speak to God boldly about things we can't change. But he can. Pray for growth. Pray for more grace. Pray for loved ones. Pray for each other. So Peter prays and then he turns and says only two words. Tabitha, arise. 
Immediately Tabitha begins to open her eyes and when she sees Peter, she sits up. Peter calls for her friends to take care of her. Suddenly, instead of weeping and sorrow, the house is now full of joy and wonder and praising the name of Jesus. And that overflows, doesn't it? Down the streets, into the square, into the market, into the port of Joppa, and where we read that many people believed in the Lord. Like the result of Aeneas in Lydda earlier on, the consequence of this great miracle is an even greater one. That many people find faith and eternal life in God. You know, Dorcas would eventually die again, but the greater miracle of finding faith in Jesus, turning to him and trusting him for forgiveness is eternal. That doesn't change. God is in the business of turning things around. We've seen that dramatically today in the lives of Paul, Aeneas and Dorcas. And I believe he is still turning things around today and wants to turn things around in our lives too. For his glory. Amen.